We're ready to announce the winner of our random drawing for a free set of false lashes from Lashbinder. You can find out more about Lashbinder at lashbinder.com, and you can also learn about their program in which every purchase of a set of their false lashes, they will donate a pair to a chemotherapy patient, which is a really, really cool program that I'm super excited to be a part of. Deborah Allen 01 at email was our randomly selected drawing winner. We thank everybody for entering their email into the Suburban Folk subscriber email where you will be notified of all new episodes and other upcoming information about the show. Again, visit lashbinder.com to find out more information and to order your own set. To go along with this promotion, we have a very special episode today featuring a cancer survivor, Dr. Renee Exelbert. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is cancer. Whether you're a patient currently being treated or if you have a loved one that's going through the disease. Our guest is Dr. Renee Exelbert. She's both a licensed psychologist and certified personal trainer. She's the founding director of the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change, where she integrates psychotherapy and exercise with a focus on the mind-body connection. She maintains a private practice in New York City, Manhasset, and Nyack, New York for the treatment of children, adolescents, adults, and families. Dr. Exelbert is also an adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at the New York University Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, where she teaches master's level psychology courses. She previously served as staff psychologist at the Winthrop University Hospital Cancer Center for Kids, working with children and adolescents diagnosed with cancer. Her first book, Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient, will be released on February 25th, 2020. Dr. Exelbert, thanks so much for joining today. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Unfortunately, I think the reality is that cancer is something that people deal with personally, like yourself, or know at least one person that has dealt with it. So I think that your story will really hit home for a lot of different folks. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join the show today. Absolutely. Why don't you get us started by giving your background uh, leading up to your cancer diagnosis and what your initial reactions were and how you initially started to deal with things. Sure. Uh, So I was a psychologist, um, and my first job out of graduate school was I was working in a pediatric cancer center, uh, and I was working with children uh, and adolescents who were diagnosed with cancer and their families. Uh, And my work pretty much comprised of walking them through the entire journey of cancer. Uh, And I had been doing that work for six years, and I absolutely loved it. I really considered it um, some of the most beautiful work I've ever done. Uh, But after six years, I had experienced a lot of loss and a lot of trauma, um, and I felt like it was time to leave the cancer world. Uh, And so I made the decision to leave that job, and I left in April, and in July, I was diagnosed with my own breast cancer. Um, So (laughs) it was was an extremely overwhelming 
uh, time for me. Um, but there were other aspects of that experience that um, compounded the trauma that I was going through. Um, for a few months prior to being diagnosed, my husband and I had been talking about um, whether or not we wanted to have a third child. And, you know, we were contemplating and going back and forth. Um, and I had discussed it with my, um, my OB. And um, we finally decided we're going to go for it. And um, I had originally gotten a, um, a prescription for a baseline mammogram uh, from my OB. Um, even though uh, people aren't recommended to get um, their first mammogram until they're 40, unless they have some significant family history of breast cancer. I had no family history of breast cancer, so I really didn't need a mammogram until I was 40. Um, but because I was you know, thinking of getting pregnant, that would be nine months, and then I would be breastfeeding. So my OB and I had discussed that I would get a baseline mammogram uh, before uh, trying to get pregnant. So um, I got my baseline mammogram, and probably a day later, um, I got pregnant and I knew I was pregnant. I have always been blessed with easy fertility and I knew instantly that I was pregnant. Um, and then about a week after my baseline mammogram, I got a call from my OB saying that the radiologist saw something concerning on my, my slide on my mammogram. And I wasn't really scared because my mother had a very long-standing history of what we call fibrocystic breasts. She was constantly having scares. She was constantly, you know, under surveillance. And so I assumed that this was going to be my journey too. And I wasn't really concerned. Um, and so they wanted me to get a rescreen. And um, I was told, you know, to make an appointment. I made a rescreen. I got an appointment for about a week and a half later. And then it was about two days later that my same gynecologist called me back. And this time he was much more concerned and said that he spoke to the radiologist again. And now they're very concerned, even though it was the same mammogram that they were looking at uh, and that they wanted me to call in immediately. Um, and I was just discussing with my OB not to worry. My mother had this history of fibrocystic breasts. This isn't, you know, this isn't going to be anything. And on top of that, I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant. Uh, and um, he was much more concerned and he wanted me to go in immediately and have this mammogram. Um, and so I did go in for my mammogram um, and I started my experience with healthcare professionals and um, you know, trying to decipher nonverbal disclosures on their faces when, you know, I kind of got the sense that something was wrong. Um, and even though I was fairly certain that, um, you know, nothing was going on, um, the technician and the original radiologist told me that um, it looked like what I had was highly indicative of a tumor uh, and that uh, it needed to be removed and that most people could still do well with this. I remember that that language, most people could still do well with this, which was really terrifying for me because that just sounded very ominous to me. Um, and so because um, there was the possibility that I was pregnant, which was then confirmed that I was indeed pregnant, I needed a needle biopsy to confirm my cancer. Um, and I had to wait over a weekend for the results. And I was expecting a call from this radiologist to tell me whether or not I had cancer. Uh, but instead of the radiologist calling, it was my OB. And my OB said to me, what's this? 
I hear you're pregnant and you have cancer. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm waiting to hear the results, but I am pregnant. But, you know, this is just a scare. They're, they're waiting to see. And he said, oh, no, I have your results and you do have cancer. And literally as the world fell beneath me and I, I, I couldn't even process what he was saying, he then went on to talk about how he gave me a prescription for a mammogram months ago and why had I waited so long to get a mammogram. And like, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even process what was happening. I, I, I couldn't even process that I had cancer. And at the same time, I was being berated by my doctor that I should have gotten a mammogram months earlier when there wasn't even any medical necessity for doing so. So there were so many things going on. Um, but that was how I was told that I had cancer. That is a lot of life changes in what is a very, very short period of time. Yeah. What is the total time span that we're talking about from when you made the decision to uh, get out of being a, a therapist for adolescent cancer patients to again getting pregnant and then ultimately having your cancer diagnosis? It sounds like we're talking about the span of a year or less. Is that right? Oh, no. it was. I, I left the pediatric cancer center in April and I was diagnosed at the end of July. Um, yeah, no, it was really quick. Um, so there was a lot of intensity and there, you know, and there was also a lot of, uh, just personal loss at that point anyway, because I was leaving a job that I really loved and, you know, it was just a different life transition. Um, but yeah, the, the experience of a diagnosis is extremely intense and extremely terrifying, but coupled with, um, pregnancy, um, and what that would potentially mean as well. I was really scary because um, there are certain types of cancer. Uh, if you're an estrogen positive cancer, the possibility of a pregnancy um, could mean that a baby could feed, be feeding your tumor. Um, a lot of things happen in, in the body when somebody's pregnant, but because of hormones, a, a baby could actually be feeding a tumor. And so the fact that I had a cancer that was growing inside me and that a, that a baby could potentially be making the tumor grow more was just really terrifying. Uh, and at the same time, desperately wanting this baby uh, and and having, you know, those experiences all at the same time. Yeah, very overwhelming. How do you compare the strategies that you employed when treating patients psychologically to that initial interaction that you had with the OB? Like you said, it sounded very matter of fact, almost even berating of told you to do this thing. You didn't do it in the time span. I thought you were going to do it. Uh, is there a very sharp contrast? It sounds like there is in how a psychologist might go about uh, the considerations for somebody starting to deal with a cancer diagnosis versus somebody that is straight in the medical field. And kind of like you mentioned, sounds like maybe even depending on what you're dealing with, I don't know if I would want to call it a, a burnout or maybe you lose your sensitivity if it's something you're dealing with every day. You know, I think that um, one of the things that makes uh, a psychologist really, really gifted at what they do is their ability to really work fully with their heart. And even though you have you maintain uh, professional boundaries, when you're working with children with cancer, those boundaries are really different. Uh, you know, you're sitting in their in their medical room and you're playing video games with them, and then they have to stop because they, you know, they're nauseous and they might throw up and you know, you're sitting with them all day long. So the boundaries are really different. 
Um, and so I think that when I worked with kids with cancer, I really worked fully with my heart. Um, but you know, when you're a men, uh, when you're a mental health professional, um, you can be incredibly loving and caring, but you're never going to really fully understand the sheer terror of what it feels like to be somebody who's diagnosed. So like as much as I could empathize and identify and really connect, uh, with my patients and their families, um, you know, my, and even though my level of, of connection and understanding was quite significant, you can never know what it feels like until you're going through it yourself. Um, I used to have this experience with patients where, you know, when they first came to our clinic, my job was to knock on the door and I would introduce myself and I would say, I'm a psychologist and I was very casual and, you know, and I would meet the kids and hang out with them. But whenever I knocked on a door, uh, parents in particular always were scared because they somehow thought that because I was a psychologist or somebody working, you know, in the medical capacity in a cancer center, that somehow I was privy to information that they didn't have. Um, and they were always afraid. And I remember working there thinking like, how, you know, of course the doctors would communicate everything that you need to know. How would I know something that you don't know? But I can tell you for sure that when I was a patient, I had the exact same experience. I remember walking into hospitals and, and literally feeling like, you know, the office staff knew, you know, knew things about me that I didn't know. And I think it's just a result of, of this um, experience of being incredibly disempowered and um, very fragile uh, and helpless. Um, and so I think that as much as I, once again, could empathize as a mental health professional, I think that there are just certain things that you cannot understand until you, you know, are a patient. I would imagine one of the notes that I had preparing for our discussion is around, did you have the feeling of why me? And that probably couples with the feeling of it can't happen to me until I'm sure you're faced with that realization. Uh, did you fall into that initial why me mindset? And like you said, does that also give you more empathy uh, or, or just put you more in the shoes of the people that you were treating? I, I definitely think that um, having cancer or going through any kind of life trauma uh, has definitely made me grow as a therapist. I think that my ability to connect with people who have had any kind of loss or trauma has has dramatically deepened since I've experienced my own loss and trauma. Um, but with regards to the why me, um, I think I spend so much time just feeling so traumatized that for a while, it, you know, in the beginning, I was like, this definitely is not me. You know, when when they were concerned that I may have, you know, something indicative of a tumor on my mammogram, I'm like, this definitely is not me. You're wrong. Like, you know, I, I this, you're wrong. This is my mother has this history, you know, like it definitely wasn't me. But when it became me, it was like just this crazy experience. Like I'm 37 years old. You know, how how can I possibly have cancer? Um, and then I think the why me became much more pronounced when I would go to these doctors and I would walk into these offices and everybody in the room was like at least 70 years old. That's when it was definitely like, how is this happening to me? Um, and I also think that, you know, I've always seen myself as a healthy, active person. I never felt sick. I didn't look sick. Um, but here I was having, you know, the medical world saying, oh no, you're sick. Um, so I felt very out of sync. I wonder if, or I should preface this with, actually, my wife is a physician, 
and going back to how people spend their day to day and even even with the why me part of it i know for her and i she tells me that i always think everything's going to be okay i think in the health world or something happening to our kids and then my day to day job is mostly in the tech world and when we talk about things like viruses uh, on the computer or getting your email account hacked or things like that i tend to think that she's not cautious enough so maybe that is just somewhat of a symptom of when you see what can happen day over day and then you're more hyper aware of it and then for the rest of us that don't live in a particular world and that why me question might creep up more and more and especially to your point a lot of people know somebody uh, whether it's a family member or colleague or whoever that has been affected by cancer but your mind i think initially goes to like you said 70s 80s hopefully older <laughs> um, that it's not somebody in the middle of um, in their prime uh, so I, I can imagine that would have emphasized uh, just how tough of a situation you found yourself in how did you then translate to your family I guess how did you initially communicate to them how did they start to cope and what was the interactions as you started to figure out your next steps sure so um you know, my, my first call, as soon as I uh, got my diagnosis was to my husband, um, who was, you know, who was equally traumatized and incredibly supportive. Um, the next call was to my parents. Um, and I think that one of the things that you become extremely aware of, and certainly something that I've learned as now a patient, but also in the research world as a professional, is that uh, you need to sort of um, experience your own feelings first, and it's very difficult to share them with other people because when you're not at the process of of managing your own emotions, it's very very difficult to to handle somebody else's. And so that was something that I sort of learned along the way that people that I shared things with had their own personal reactions, and I wasn't strong enough to deal with other people's reactions. I, I could barely cope with my own. Uh, so I think that that's something that I learned, um, and also something that I've you know, that I communicate about in my book, um, that, you know, when somebody is sharing their news with somebody, you know, as a friend, family member, it's hard to sort of put your own needs aside. But, you know, a patient um, very often isn't even in control of their emotions. They can't deal with other people's. And so for many people, they shut down and they choose not even to share their information with other people because they don't want to have to manage the emotions of somebody else. Um, but my children at the time were, were only three years old and seven. And so I was so uh, devastated going through all of my own experience and everything was so immediate. You know, I had this time frame where I had to have surgery quickly. I had to decide whether or not I was going to uh, terminate my pregnancy because of the risk to the fetus or a possible risk to myself because of the fetus. I had so many things that I had to navigate so quickly um, that, you know, sort of handling talking to children was a totally different thing. Um, and what was interesting is that the majority of my job working with kids with cancer was teaching parents how to speak to kids 
about cancer, how to talk to siblings about cancer, how to let the child themselves know that they had cancer. You know, I had a lot of research and I had written papers about all this. And so here I was, you know, as the mommy now, um, and this was my children, you know, talking to my children about cancer. Uh, so it was a very, very different experience. Um, plus they were very little. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is, um, you know, developmentally, we give different information uh, to children based on their age, their understanding, their educational level, their cognitive functioning, all those things. Uh, so my children were very, very little. So when I was finally able to start talking to them about what was going on, it was language that was, you know, based on their developmental understanding. Um, I think at the time I said, mommy has boo-boos in her boobies. Um, you know, because that's, you know, that's they, you know, three years old, you know, uh, seven years old. So, um, so there was just a lot going on. Um, and that was, you know, that was my, my family experience, my initial diagnosis. And the best way I could relate to that is before I had kids, any horrible story that you would read in the newspaper about kids that your kid's age or younger, without having a personal experience to attach to it, you feel bad, but it has a whole new meaning when you actually have your own kids of that age and you then take those stories and say, I can't believe what I would do if I had to go through this. So to your point, luckily you had all of that training going in, but still having to apply it to your own situation and to your own kids, I imagine those were unimaginably difficult conversations to have. Well, it's, well, it's, yes, they were. But what's interesting is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know that I had a recurrence. And so the first time that I had cancer, the conversation was really, you know, I had this very early stage cancer. And for all intents and purposes, all that was going to happen to me was that I was going to have this sort of life altering surgery. And then I was going to be on hormone therapy. And then, you know, I should be okay. Um, and so the conversation that I had with my children was, you know, was around that, you know, um, and they were so little. But the second time, you know, I had a recurrence um, seven years later. And the second time, my children were much older and they could fully understand what was going on. And my cancer was different. You know, I was going to be having radiation and chemotherapy and, you know, and they were certainly old enough to have their, you know, lives affected and certainly old enough to be really concerned about me dying. Um, and so my, the language was very different. The interaction with my whole family was very different. Their, their uh, role as caregivers to their mother um, became different. Um, you know, so all of these things have been part of my family. They've been part of my experience. Um, and there have been so many parallels that I have encountered with my work with patients. You know, I've had so many patients over the years who have said to me, um, they're upset that their children had to deal with them getting a divorce, or they're upset that their children had to deal with alcoholism in their family, or um, you know, addiction, or any anything. And you know, I've always commented that you know we can't take these things away; that they are they just are part of you know our world, and that because of what your kids experience, it helps shape them, right? You know, kids, kids are going to experience a thousand different things. They're going to experience maybe job loss or divorce or illness or death or, or whatever. But, 
you know, this was like definitely um, something that, uh, you know, I saw firsthand this major life event that was really shaping my children, you know, seeing, having them see their mommy sick, you know, having them come home from school and me being in bed, having just had chemotherapy and, you know, me being, you know, out of the land of the living for several days and, you know, and, and them probably really worrying, you know, and us talking about it as a family routinely, you know? Um, so yeah, that was, that was a big part of my life and their life. Is there any cycles or timelines that go along with interacting with people going back to even coworkers or other colleagues? And like you said, the way that they perceive you or deal with you and and that being almost its own task. Uh, And then as compared to how your family handles everything. You know, I think that there's so many variables that, um, that impact that. I think that, you know, it's, it's based on so many different things. It's based on how open uh, the patient themselves is with what's going on. Right. So how much they tell somebody what they, you know, what their experience is. It's based on, the person who you're interacting with, like, what are they, what's their experience with cancer? What do they know about cancer? What do they want to know about cancer? It's based on their own, sometimes it's based on their own ignorance, right? They might ask questions that are incredibly inappropriate. Um, they might tell you stories that are incredibly inappropriate. So I think that it, I think to answer your question, it's, it's a continuous battle. I don't think it ever changes because I think that as an individual going through illness, your identity is constantly changing. The way that I experienced my own identity when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer versus today uh, is so different. The way I see myself is so different. The way that I talk to people about my cancer is so different. When I was first diagnosed, I, I, you know, I didn't tell anybody. I told my closest friends what was going on and only the few people in my life what kind of surgery I had, that I had eventually had the loss of a baby. I only shared that with few, few people. Um, As time progressed, I ended up sharing with all of my patients, you know, that I had breast cancer. Like I'm very, very open about it now. Um, And here, you know, I literally pour my soul out (laughs) on page um, in my book. And I I literally have, have, you know, have shared everything, the most intimate details of what I went through, but that's only because in my own psychological development, I'm in a different place. Um, so I, I think I answered your question. I'm not sure, but um, I think that people, you know, this relationship with how you interact with other people is always changing based on both you and them. Yeah, ever evolving is yeah the term that I was thinking when I'm hearing you describe yeah. those interactions and that makes sense because I think people change all the time and evolve. So those interactions would also evolve along with that. So moving into treatment itself, and like you mentioned, not only are you dealing with the cancer diagnosis and what the treatments are going to be, you're pregnant at the same time, which has an extra set of complications and decisions, I guess, to be made. Um, Walk me through that process and ultimately um, what the treatment ended up being. Sure. So, um, 
you know, once it was determined that I was in fact pregnant and I did in fact have cancer, uh, the cancer was pervasive through my breast, uh, which meant that I was, I was going to necessitate a mastectomy. Uh, so at the time, being a 37-year-old and hearing that, I, I just can't even express uh, the amount of identity changes that that immediately, um, you know, caused. Um, just in terms of femininity, physical beauty, um, just everything. Um, and so that was what that was the medical procedure that I was going to necessitate um, because I was so thin. Uh, they had two different uh, medical treatments. One was a uh, flap where they take your extra uh, fats from your belly and they can literally make a like a breast. Um, and I was too thin for that. And so I needed implants. Um, and so the original decision was that I was going to have a mastectomy with, you know, reconstruction with with an implant. Um, I saw an amazing, wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful plastic surgeon who has been such a significant part of my journey and really a friend and somebody who has really taken care of me in such a wonderful way. And when I met him, um, he originally talked about how women who have a single mastectomy, um, he talked about the aesthetics of that, how uh, when you have a single mastectomy, you can never really, he, he said that he, that your breasts would be more like sisters than twins. Um, and that if that was, that was his terminology. And that, you know, if I did have the single mastectomy, that he would want to do some sort of surgical procedure to my other breast to just sort of make them more aligned. Uh, and then when I spoke to my surgeon, there was some, some research, small, but albeit research that suggested that there was a possibility that if you had cancer in one breast, it could linger behind the chest wall or somehow, you know, get somehow, you know, permeate to the other breast. There was some small research. So, so this idea that possibly you might want to consider a double mastectomy started coming in and, um, and then, you know, and these were just thoughts and, and these were just all, everything coming so quickly at me. Um, but what had happened was probably about two days before my surgery, I had to go for a scan to just check my breast again. But at the same time, they wanted to check my other breast. And because I, I had highly dense breasts and because my mom had this history of this fibrocystic breast, which I guess I had as well, when they were doing the scan, they thought they saw something in my healthy breast. And the attention to that and the focus to that I, I was like beyond, beyond terrifying. Like here I was, you know, dealing with cancer in one breast and about to have a mastectomy. And now they're focusing on this other breast. And, and the idea that that could potentially have been, you know, malignant or sick um, was just too much, like literally too much for me. And um, my doctor had told me, you know, just so you know, you're going to be under much greater surveillance from this point forward. Um, because you have breast cancer in one breast, your other breast is going to be, you know, always suspect. Uh, so you need to know that this scare that you had today, you're going to have probably, you know, routinely. And that was so much for me and so traumatizing that I started considering, did I want to have a double mastectomy? Um, and, you know, I spoke to a few people and, and that's also where opinions come in. You know, some people said, why would you do that? And, 
you know, and some people said, you know, why don't you want to keep your breast? And other people were like, what's, you know, yeah, sure. Why not? Who cares? Get them both off. You know, it's a very interesting. Um, but, you know, it was, um, I made the decision to have a double mastectomy. And one of the chapters that I write about in my book, um, you know, it was sort of, I, you know, when I relayed that decision to my surgeon, she, my surgeon hadn't known until I walked in that day if I was going to be doing a single mastectomy or a double mastectomy. She told me I could let her know last minute. And so when I walked in, she said, one breast or two. And I write in my book, like, it, it, it seemed like, do you want one lump of sugar or two? Like, it was so, right. it was just this vernacular that was so commonplace for her, but it was like, it was my breast, you know, and it was like, am I going to get rid of one or two? And it was so, you know, just really huge, huge. Um, and and I, I would say that, you know, there were a few times I thought, was that the right decision? Should I have done that? But ultimately, I think that was definitely the right decision for me. But there were one or two times where I, you know, where I thought maybe it wasn't, um, you know, when I was struggling with, you know, how much my identity had changed. And, you know, but um, interestingly enough, I had this when I was when I was born, I had this ugly little mole uh, sort of between my on my chest, between my between my breasts, this ugly little mole. And so um, when I was about to have my surgery, my plastic surgeon and my surgeon said, can we get rid of that mole? And they're like, it's so ugly. Can we please get rid of it? You're going to be out. You won't feel it, you know? And, and it was, this is sort of one of those emotional pieces, right? It was like my identity was changing so much in my eyes that this mole was like a piece of me, right? And I'm like, no, you can't take my mole. This mole is part of me and, and I'm keeping it. And I kept my mole. So, you know, these just these, these emotional, psychological, you know, um, metaphors, I guess, for, for change and, and development, you know, stay with us. Actually, you surprised me. I thought you were going to say that you said, okay, yep, yeah, let's, let's do it. I'll, at least I'm getting something out of this. No, nope, I kept my ugly mole. <laughs> <Good> for you. <laughs> so, so surgery presumably <laughs> went off without a hitch, I'm guessing. And what was the recovery and road like after that? So having a double mastectomy is actually a really painful surgery and it's and it's multiple surgeries um mm -hmm. you first have the ultimate surgery to you know to remove your your breast tissue and and it's a very painful surgery to heal from um they put something uh underneath the chest wall called these these tissue expanders um and then you have to wait a period of time for them to start uh they they pretty much even though i had um silicone implants they they pretty much over time try to um, fill the breast tissue with saline to get you to the same breast size that you were originally. Um, and that takes, you know, a time period. Um, and my plastic surgeon was so wonderful. Like he would, you know, he, he just, he, each week, you know, he would fill me with saline and he would have me go up to the receptionist and he'd be like, go ask her, you know, what she thinks. And it was very funny and very playful and, you know, and, and, but it's a, it's, it's a several month process and it is a, an extremely painful um, surgery. And, um, you know, it's like behind the chest wall and, um, you know, it's, it's, it changes your mobility, um, you know, it's, and it's frightening to, to go through all of that. But um, ultimately, 
you know, I had the reconstruction. There are some uh, people who have uh, breast cancer and have a double mastectomy who elect not to have reconstruction. For me, that was, you know, never a consideration. And I feel incredibly blessed that I was able to have reconstruction. Um, and now I have Pamela Anderson boobs. I'm going to be the hottest, uh, you know, grandmother in the nursing home. Um, so yeah, so, (laughs) so that was just, um, that was my surgery and, and really after the surgery and after kind of getting back on my feet, um, and, you know, a few months of sort of developing mobility and strength again in my chest and, you know, being able to fully move my arms, um, then it was really mostly the psychological adjustment, um, and seeing myself in a different way and, um, emotionally, you know, just having a big change in my identity. You know, once again, I was 37 years old and, um, you know, and it just, you know, it was, it was a lot. And I also at the time wasn't open about it. As I said, very, very few people knew what I was going through. And, you know, so here I was like going to work every day and you know, nobody had any idea what I was going through. And here I was showing up. I was my daughter's brownie troop leader and I was in the PTA and, nobody had a clue. You know, I didn't miss a beat. Um, so there were some advantages uh, for me for that because I continued to go on with my life. But in terms of social support, it was more limited because I had only shared it with a few people. But once again, that was, you know, really where I was at my own psychological uh, adjustment, you know, to, to my identity changes. And as I said previously, that changed over time. And with the decision for the double mastectomy, did that indeed end up limiting the amount of checks that you had to go through to make sure that everything was okay after you healed from surgery? Or, I mean, I'm sure it's hard to tell because you can't compare it to the thing that that didn't occur, but do you you have any idea if it did at least limit the amount of, um, yeah, just checkups? Oh, 100%. After I had the double mastectomy, like really the, you know, occasionally I'll have like a scan, but for the most part, it's just my oncologist, um, you know, like really doing like just a, a touch te- a touch test for any possibility. You know, even though I had the double mastectomy, I still had a possibility of a recurrence, which I told you I did end up having, which is another fun story. But um, I always, you know, sort of joked with my oncologist, I would say, you know, if he was, if he was um, examining me, you know, I'd say, uh, 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 I said, before you touch my boobs, you have to put a dollar in the jar, you know, and anybody <laughs> who comes in the room would have to put a dollar in the jar. And um, I remember when I did have my recurrence, I was getting radiation and I was, it was, I was actually being marked for radiation before I had radiation. And I was, I was really traumatized by the whole experience of, of a recurrence. And I remember trying to be positive. And I said to the, one of the technicians um, in the radiation room, I said, anybody in the room, I said, if I, anybody in the room, if you touch my boobs, you have to put a dollar in the jar. And she said, are you kidding me? She said, it's only one boob. You're only getting 50 cents. And so, you know, things like that, that are, you know, that, that help that, that, you know, the, it's a positive interaction between healthcare providers and patients. And these things are, you know, I, I write a, a lot about this in my book, the, you know, the small things that healthcare providers can do, the small things that, the small interactions that are really meaningful. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 11 other great podcasts, including the Round and Round podcast. 
Hey, this is Jeff. And I'm Chris. We've been friends. Acquaintances. Nah, friends. Shipmates. Dude, come on. We've been friends. Fine. Sure. Whatever. We've been friends for 23? No, 24. Whatever, dude. It's been a long time. <laughs> no kidding. We host a show called Round and Round. We discuss the worst. And sometimes the best. Headlines we can find. Watch for signs of the Cold War heating up again. And desperately try to find some good news to celebrate. Occasionally, we delve into important topics impacting the world, the nation, or those around us. And every once in a while, we take a break from the real world to talk about new movies or to revisit and reimagine old movies we love. Find us at rnrthepodcast.com. Tweet us at rnrthepodcast and download Round and Round on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you cast your pods. Join us every Wednesday, won't you? I wouldn't recommend it. That's fine. And it sounds like you've had a wide array of experiences with the healthcare providers that you've dealt with. Is that just different personalities? Was it certain specialties were different than others? I myself am a healthcare provider. I think that healthcare providers in general uh, need so much education on how to more effectively work with patients. Um, There's so many things that just people aren't aware of, um, you know, things like ways that a patient can quickly be traumatized. You know, th- there's so many ways that patients are disempowered, you know, from the moment they walk in and they're, you know, and they're not even like a full person with dignity when they're, you know, cold in a room and they're wearing a little hospital gown. Um, so many things that healthcare providers might do that they don't realize are conveying a lot of messages to a patient. You know, one of the things that I talk about in my book is nonverbal disclosures. You know, there's a, there's, there's the spoken word, right? But what we know about nonverbal communication or body language is that the spoken word really only is about 30% efficacious. Like there's about 70% of the message that's nonverbal. So if a, if a person is saying to you, you know, with a straight face, um, I don't know any information. You know, I have your slide in front of me, but I don't know any information. But their nonverbal disclosures are saying something is terribly wrong here. The patient's going to pick up on that. You see it, you feel it. And it just creates immediately uh, an environment of mistrust. And so these are things that healthcare providers in general really need to be aware of. Um, you know, just in terms of making a person feel whole, um, you know, there, there are ways that a um, healthcare professional can interact with a patient that makes them feel very pathologized, you know, when you're not looking at them, when you're writing notes the entire time you're speaking to them. There's a, uh, an article that I read that said, if you're a healthcare provider, think about if you couldn't speak at all and you could only use your body, what would you be saying to your patients, right? Like if you couldn't speak at all, how would you be committed, right? And that's really an important thing. And so these are a lot of the things that I try and learn from, you know, as with my experience working with patients. I try really, really hard to um, connect with people and hear what they're feeling. Um, but, you know, I've had, I had some very profound experiences where um, I felt very pathologized and I felt literally like a pair of sickly breasts. Um, and then I had some interactions where I felt really whole and that I was 
a mother and a psychologist. You know, I remember um, I had uh, in in with my initial uh, one of my initial scans. I had a woman. Here I was that they were doing a needle biopsy, and she knew I was pregnant, and she knew I was a psychologist. And here I was terrified, like literally terrified, because I thought I had cancer. And she started talking to me about her son, who she thinks has ADHD, and she wanted my advice. And you know, somebody on the other end may, you know, somebody out there may think, oh, that's so inappropriate. You know, this here, this woman's going through her own trauma and this woman's asking her about her son. But the reverse is true. You know, when somebody is sick, they need to be thought of as more than a diagnosis. They need to be seen for their whole identity. You know, our illness is just a piece of who we are. And so, you know, I'm a psychologist and I, I know a lot about about human beings. And I know a lot about ADHD. And so the fact that this woman saw me still as a valuable person who could, you know, help her when I was so helpless was really important to me. Um, and I had just had one other interaction that I thought was so profoundly beautiful and funny. Um, when I had my recurrence, um, I had gone through a week of chemo and I had this horrible, horrible, debilitating headache. and my oncologist said, I don't want you to worry, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you a CAT scan. You know, you know, we just want to make sure that there's no metastasis to your brain. And it was hard, terrifying, absolutely horrifying. And so here I was re-traumatized again. I, I'm going in my little hospital gown and my booty sticking out and it's cold. And I walk into this room and uh, this young woman, she was probably in her late 20s, she saw me and she said, and she's take, doing an intake on me before I get this CAT scan of my brain. And she said, you have the best biceps. Wow. And then I said, oh, I'm a personal trainer. And we started talking and she wanted to hear my story. So I told her my story and I was literally about to go like lie on this slab and have my brain CAT scan. And she said, can I ask you? She said, what exercises can I do? Because my booty keeps sagging. Like, what can I do? And so I'm like, you know, she's like, do you mind? And I'm like, no. And then so I start telling her, you know, you could do these Romanian deadlifts and these walking lunges. And then she walks me into the scan room. She has two, two young friends. She's like, you guys, she's like, she's a personal trainer. I was just asking her about my butt. You know, and they're like, oh, my God, what can I do? Like, I, you know, I'm doing these squats, but I've done that. And here I am, like, literally in my little hospital gown. And I, I swear to you, I, I, I'm standing in front of them and I'm showing them how to do up the perfect squat. And as I'm doing this, like, for those brief moments, I'm not the sick patient, you know, who may have a brain tumor. I'm a valuable personal trainer, you know, and. And so that was such an empowering, important, and funny moment. Um, and then when I got on that slab, you know, that cold metal slab and how to have the scan, I was much calmer and I felt very supported by these women. I felt like they were like my, my personal training sisters. Um, but more importantly, you know, I remembered that, you know, that there's a lot more to me than this, you know, than this cancer. Um, so those were some positive experiences. And unfortunately, I had, you know, several very negative ones as well. Well, it sounds like with that last experience, they're adding a sense of normalcy, which you probably didn't get on a regular basis. And then I think what 
you're describing is a sense of purpose. Absolutely. Regardless of what's happening in anybody's life, I think a sense of purpose is crucial uh, for for anybody to feel well useful. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, so that does sound like a great interaction. Now, I have to ask, like you said, with the negative ones, did you ever call out uh, any of the clinicians that were being more cold? I did. And I think that that has also been part of my journey. You know, my first really, really negative interaction, as I previously discussed, was with my uh, my gynecologist, you know, who as he was relaying to me this life-altering cancer diagnosis, was berating me for not getting a mammogram earlier. (laughs) You know, and there was no medical reason why I should have. I think, you know, looking back, I kind of think that he was thinking about his own liability. Um, But in the moment, it was incredibly traumatizing. So I had for many, many years wanted to write him a letter, just sort of telling him how much he traumatized me. And unfortunately, I never did. Um, But I think that, and I had wanted to, but I never did. And I think that 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 desire and that unmet need to sort of stand up for myself is something that stayed with me. And so anytime that I experienced any kind of um, perceived injustice that I experienced from any healthcare provider, ever since then, I totally stand up for myself. I had once... um, an ophthalmologist who uh, asked me what my history was and I told him I had breast cancer and he wanted to know what medication I was on and I indicated the particular hormone therapy that I was on. And he said, oh, well then, you know, there's a, there's a, since you're on that hormone therapy, there is a risk that your cancer could have metastasized to your eyeball. So I need to check the back of your eyeball because there's a possibility that you could have a secondary cancer. And it was just a matter of fact, you know, bit of information that he wanted to communicate to me. And I was absolutely traumatized, like traumatized. And I sat there with him checking my eye and, you know, and I, I said, how long until you have the results? And he said, you know, you'll sit outside and, you know, and and it should be a couple of minutes. And I literally was completely traumatized. And when I left his office, I came home hysterically crying and, and I, I mean, I, I sank, it was a a devastating experience and I was so upset by it, but I took that sadness and I was like, I'm not going through this again. And I called him and I told him, I said, I need to educate you on, you know, what just happened and how you made me feel. And I want to relate to you you know, what a patient goes through when they've experienced trauma and how easily they can be re-traumatized and what you need to know as a healthcare provider to make sure that you don't re-traumatize somebody. And I was very kind and I relayed all this information to him and he was incredibly kind and loving and apologetic and received it very, very well and told me he had no idea and he was extremely thankful that I educated him and that he would use this information going forward to be a better clinician. And I will go to him forever because he was open enough to hear me and, you know, incorporate my feedback. And I love that. Um, And so I have done things like that routinely, Um, even with my veterinarian (laughs) the other day who was talking about my dog um, when, and the door was open and he didn't, you know, he was talking, he was training a student, an intern, but he had the door open and I could hear the feedback 
from the other room and I was waiting for results about my dog. And I was, you know, hearing things that he was talking about and he had no knowledge that I was hearing them. And when he came back in the room, I, you know, I once again, I say, and I try and say it in a very nice way, but I no longer am able to sit by and not advocate for myself or future patients. I can't, I, I cannot do it. And if somebody doesn't receive me well, that's okay. But I now recognize that I have a, a choice in my healthcare. Um, and that's a real way for patients to be empowered to exercise their choice. Um, and so if somebody can't hear me, that's okay, but I will go to another healthcare provider. You know, so many studies show that our relationship to our healthcare team actually can impact our mortality. You know, your relationship to your healthcare team is really, really important. You need people who are invested in you and who believe in you. And so I don't take that for granted. I don't minimize that in my own life. Making sure that you pick the right provider. I would think just even the characteristic of being willing to always improve <laughs> is something you'd like to have, especially from a healthcare provider. So how they take feedback from any person probably would be good knowledge to have just in how they view improvement in their, their world just in general. And speaking of improvement, you mentioned personal trainer. My understanding is you went down that path of fitness and ultimately becoming a personal trainer during your treatment. When did you decide to pursue that? And what is it about focusing on your fitness that was a help ultimately in uh, dealing with your, your cancer? So immediately after um, my breast cancer diagnosis, I read an article, I started reading a lot of articles about cancer. And I read that uh, sugar feeds tumors. Um, and so I was like a self-professed um, sugar addict, I would, you know, I would inject Sour Patch Kids like heroin. Um, and so I, so I, I literally gave up sugar, like instantaneously. And even at the hospital, my brother, um, he was one of my first visitors, and he came with this giant bag of gummy bears. Um, and I didn't eat it. Like it was, it was literally like, sugar is going to increase my tumors, and I want no part of it. So I started dramatically changing my diet, and I also read lots of articles about exercise and the efficacy of exercise and how it's correlated with a decrease in breast cancer recurrence. And, you know, and so because I felt so out of control uh, in my life, I needed a way to feel back in control. You know, as I had mentioned to you, I never felt sick. I didn't look sick. And here, you know, the universe was saying, no, 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 you are sick. And so I felt very betrayed by my body and I felt very out of sync. And so I needed to find a way to, to regain a sense of control. And so exercise and diet were the two ways that I felt very in control. Um, and so I started exercise and I had always loved exercise, but I started exercising much more. Uh, and I started to get more into it. And the more into exercise I, I became, the more strong I felt. Um, and as I got stronger and stronger, I felt like there's no way that I could be sick. Like I felt so far away from being sick because I felt so strong and healthy. Uh, so, you know, even with the diet and exercise, it was sort of like you told your body to do this specific thing and it was going to do it. You know, if you fed it protein, your muscles were going to grow, you know, and so I really love that. And it was tremendously helpful for me and tremendously healing, um, you know, and even just metaphorically uh, exercise, you know, like literally when you do a push up, 
it's like holding yourself up and supporting yourself in the world. Um, and I saw a lot of these things as metaphors for life, you know, that like when life pushes you down, you push yourself back up, you know, and you support yourself and hold yourself up in a push up. Uh, and so I started getting really into diet and exercise. Uh, and I actually ha- was speaking to a neuropsychologist friend of mine and I was telling him how much I loved exercise and how, how much I thought it helped me and how I thought it could help my patients. And I was reading lots of articles about, you know, exercise and how it decreases depression and anxiety and certain foods. And I was starting to get really into this mind body interaction. And this neuropsychologist told me that, uh, exercise was the only one proven modality to ward off dementia um, and and how important it was. And he said, you know what, you might want to think about incorporating exercise with your patients who have dementia. And all of a sudden, like this whole idea clicked. And I was like, I'm not going to just, you know, incorporate it with my patients who have dementia. Like, I'm totally into this. This has helped me so much. I'm going to open up a center and I'm going to do this mind-body thing where I incorporate psychotherapy and exercise. Um, And I did. So I opened up uh, the center. It's called the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change. And I have this very eccentric office. It's half gym and half stodgy psychotherapy office. (laughs) And um, I do amazing things with, with exercise. I incorporate it with so many different patients in so many different modalities. And I, I just believe in it so much. I work with kids who are being bullied. Uh, and so outside of the traditional psychotherapy where we might talk about social skills or self-esteem, we incorporate exercise where I you know, might have this young man close his eyes. And as he's doing a bicep curl, as he's bringing the you know, the, um, the dumbbell to his, you know, straight up to his arm or whatever, I have him envision literally becoming physically and emotionally stronger. And we work on this visualization, you know, for a portion of our therapy. And then we, you know, incorporate the regular psychotherapy. And I have just found that these combinations of this visual imagery and psychotherapy and exercise are very, very powerful. Um, and so it's helped me tremendously. I can talk on and on about all these wonderful things that I do with exercise and psychotherapy, but um, it's helped me phenomenally. And um, I love it. And so along the way, I decided I wanted to become a personal trainer. Um, I started working with a personal trainer and she taught me a lot. Uh, and then I started, you know, reading this thousand page book. Uh, and, you know, while my kids were at Kumon or gymnastics, I would you know, pull out this book and learn about anatomy and physiology. And, and then I would go to the gym and learn all these things. And I eventually became a personal trainer. And um, my trainer who was training me was a professional bodybuilding figure competitor. Uh, And she used to say to me, are you going to compete one day? And I was like, do you mean, am I going to stand on stage in stripper heels and a bikini (laughs) and flex my muscles? You've got to be kidding me. And she would say, there's a lot more to it than that. And I was like, okay, it's totally not happening. And as time went on, I was about three years past cancer diagnosis, four years. And all of a sudden, I'm becoming like this muscle head gym rat living in the gym and eating really clean. And I would have more and more people start walking over to me saying, are you competing? Are you doing a show? 
And all of a sudden I started thinking this might be a great way to mark my five year anniversary. Um, and I thought about how it was like the one way where I felt back in control of my body and that it would be a, mu- a beautiful uh, tribute on my five-year anniversary to do the show um, where I was literally saying to my body, you know, I'm going to exercise and you're going to grow muscles this way and I'm going to restrict my food this way and you're going to respond with, you know, fat content this way. Like, and it totally got me back in control of my body and it was a beautiful experience. Um, and so since then I, you know, I've done a few figure competitions and I'm hoping to rock my bikini again sometime this year. (laughs) That's awesome. And the one word that you just mentioned that I was thinking as you were describing your journey is control and everything that you'd been through. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was a sense of being out of control as you were getting the initial news and working through treatment. And I think when you think of most things, fitness and dieting related, these are all things that any person can control. So it makes a lot of sense that that would be something that you're able to gravitate towards. And it also makes sense for your patients who probably feel that sense of being out of control, like bullying, like you mentioned, uh, that they feel powerless uh, to incorporate these things so that they have something that they can keep in control. Absolutely. And, And studies show that exercise is as effective as some antidepressants. Like, our brain literally gets the neurotransmitter serotonin when we exercise and that's responsible for our mood and our appetite and our sleep and motivation. And so we get that naturally from exercise. So it's, it's a win-win. Yeah. I'm a runner for most of my exercise. And while I won't necessarily say I know exactly what the runner's high is, I do get certain periods where I just feel like I can rip off mile after mile and definitely afterwards whether it's the kids or work or whatever is going on, it doesn't get to me as quickly, I think, when I'm first done with my run. So there is definitely something to it from a mood altering. Yeah. And the strength that you get, you know, physically translates to mental strength. Like you take that physical, you know, what you take the mental strength that you get and you translate it. it. It applies to the rest of your life. If you could you know, tackle these goals in the gym and raise your weight and, you know, and, and do these great things with your body. You carry it through everything, you know, and, and things that you have to deal with for the rest of the day be, just become easier. Makes sense. And as, as something that I think people should keep in mind. So before I let you go, uh, let's talk about the book. So you have a book coming out in the very end of February. What made you ultimately decide that you wanted to put your experiences down so that it's something that people can pick up and draw inspiration from. You know, I I have a a very unique perspective since I've seen cancer from both sides. Um, I, from a research standpoint, knew a lot about cancer and coping. Um, And I obviously, from a patient perspective, had my own experience. I really wanted to write about that. Um, I wanted to share uh, ways that patients could start to feel more empowered with their experience with healthcare. Um, I wanted to teach them about uh, better ways to cope that I know about as a psychologist through research. You know, those are diet and exercise that we talked about, but also humor, gratitude, mindfulness techniques, visual imagery, social support. Um, All of those things are very, very important. And I write about 
all of them and, you know, back up all of those um, techniques with research. Uh, I also wanted to educate loved ones about the ways that they can help uh, someone with cancer, offering concrete assistance, like driving their kids somewhere or saying, you know, taking them to chemo. Many people say, you know, let me know what I can do for you. Um, But these aren't helpful because somebody who's sick and vulnerable is not going to go out of their way to, you know, to put themselves out there. They, they, they're struggling enough so that, you know, as much as that person might be well-intentioned and says, you know, let me know what I, what you need, it's probably not going to happen. So what would be more helpful is to say, like, let me take you to chemo or let me cook you dinner. Um, And so I, I talk about, you know, techniques for family members, but I also talk a lot about ways that they can not victimize somebody twice. Um, you know, something that I experienced a lot was what I labeled interpersonal betrayal. And what I mean by that is that loved ones, friends and family, you know, they are in need of of support and coping with the patient's diagnosis themselves. They're traumatized themselves. And so one of the ways that they cope is they talk to their friends and family and they talk to other people about, you know, what their loved one is going through. The only problem with that is that the loved one or the patient might not want other people to know, right? So when I was going through cancer, I had many people come over to me and say, I heard you lost a baby. I heard you had this this uh, surgery. And some of these things I hadn't even shared yet with my children. Um, and so that was a horrifying experience. And so one of the things that research tells us is that when somebody's disempowered, one of the ways that they need to regain a sense of power is to be able to tell their story to whom they want, when they want, and in the capacity that they want. And so I, I try and teach friends and family members, you know, these things that research tells us so that they can be more helpful. Um, and then I talk about healthcare providers a lot and ways that healthcare providers can you know, be more sensitive and and, uh, treat their patients with greater dignity and respect. How long did it take you to ultimately compile all of your experiences and then get the book written? Uh, I started writing my book um, in 2007. um, And I shelved it for a very long time because psychologically, I really wasn't ready to put myself out there. Um, And then in 2014, seven years later, I took it out and I kind of wanted to start writing again. And I had written maybe a quarter of the book and I was ready to finish it. And that's when I had my recurrence. So it was like a whole other chapter that I wasn't planning. Sure. But uh, I really, I would say from 2014 is when I really started writing and, you know, when I finished it and it's out and I'm super proud of it. You've been writing the book during your experiences. And then like you mentioned, uh, life being what it is, throwing extra surprises, uh, it, it extended maybe longer than you had thought. So what are your future plans after, again, the book comes out on February 25th, 2020? And full disclosure, we're recording this just before the book comes out. So I'm really excited to uh, see its debut. Uh, I hope to hear from you uh, about how it's doing and how your promotions are going. What does the future hold for you uh, beyond the book release? Oh, I hope the future holds lots of growth and and uh, good things for me. But um, I'm going to continue uh, growing my Metamorphosis Center, which I really love. Um, I'm going to continue public speaking events on mind-body topics. 
Um, and I am super excited about the release of this book. I'm hoping that it's going to help a lot of people. Um, and I also plan to write more, uh, not necessarily about cancer, but I have lots of ideas inside of me. Um, and I have my first uh, book signing coming up um, on March 4th. Uh, it's at Book Review in Huntington, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, and yeah, so that's my story. Very cool. Well, if you find yourself in Virginia, you're going to have to let me know so I can stop by for a book signing or at least just to say hello. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. And maybe we'll go for a run. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll see. Maybe if I can beat you in a run, then you can take me to the gym and show me uh, what lifting weights that is really like. That sounds great. <laughs> That sounds great. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, for sure. And again, just reminder to folks that the book is Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient. And Renee, it really has been a pleasure to speak to you and for you to share your experiences. Before we go, can you go ahead and share your contact info with folks where they might get a hold of you on social media? And then again, any upcoming events that you'd like to let people know about? Sure. So uh, my first upcoming event, my first book signing is Wednesday, March 4th at 7 p.m. And that's at Book Review in Huntington, Long Island, New York. Um, my website is drexelbert.com. And that's Dr. E X E L as in love, B as in boy, E R as in rabbit, T as in thomas.com. Uh, LinkedIn, it's Renee Exelbert. Uh, and Twitter, at Renee Exelbert. Uh, and Instagram, dr.renee.exelbert. Uh, and my book is February 25th, Mascot Publishing, and it's Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient. And I know it's available on Amazon. Are there other places that you'd point folks to to get the book? Mostly Amazon. It's in select bookstores, and I'm, I'm not going to try and list all of them now, but <laughs> definitely on Amazon. Definitely on Amazon. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I knew I wouldn't be disappointed, uh, like I mentioned when we started our conversation, and I definitely was not. Again, I really appreciate your time, and we will be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great speaking with you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening.